Rise and shine, liberty-loving patriots. Welcome to the Chrisanne Hall Daily Journal. Chrisanne Hall here, K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com. Liberty over security, principle over party, and truth over your favorite personality. Greetings, everyone out there in YouTube, Facebook, social media land, and also listening to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, uh, I'm sorry, iTunes, Google Music, Play, and all the other uh, mediums upon which this show goes out through the airwaves, internationally, domestically, everyone wants to know about liberty. And that's what we do here on the show. We bring you what you need from a liberty and principled perspective. And today, today, this is a special episode, the episode that I promised you yesterday, those of you who are here because you heard yesterday, those of you who are here because you're here every day with us, those of you who are here because you saw no social media and you want to know the truth, that's what we're doing today. Remember, I am a teach show, not a talk show. So what I want to share with you today is a, and, and I don't have a lot of time, so we're going to get straight to it. Uh, this is going to take the full time of the show. And this is my foundational class. If you are a student at libertyfirstuniversity.com, then you know about this class because every student at libertyfirstuniversity.com has to take this course first. This is the foundational course for understanding absolutely everything that has to do with our constitutional republic, our government, how they're supposed to work, what our founders intended, and how uh, we are to be responsible for our government. And so this class will show you the history of how governments always work, that history always repeats, and those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. There is one thing, as I have taught this class over a decade now, that has been absolutely undeniable. All my audiences, all of them, every single one of them, are shocked. And I mean people who have PhDs in American history, who are lawyers, who are judges, who have a PhD in political science, they tell me every single time they've learned more from this class that I'm about to give you at no cost than they learned in their entire PhD level education. Now that's not bragging on the class. That is absolutely an indictment on our education system. Now what this class will do my prayer, why I was, in, I was impressed, why the God laid on my heart to do this for you today, to give this class, because I usually only offer it at libertyfirstuniversity.com. I usually only offer it in live trainings. We don't even have this class on DVD for purchase. This is a fundamental class that you have to have. And what I'm hoping from this class is to relieve the panic of the invisible enemy, this orchestrated 
domestic terrorism, I'm just going to call it, the economic terrorism of this viral frenzy by showing you there is nothing new under the sun. We have lived through this before, many, many times. We will live through this again. And the most important thing that we need to do, the most vital thing we need to do, is to maintain our rights. Now, I'm giving this class today because I see the panic reaching across America, touching those who even declare themselves to be conservatives, even declare themselves to be constitutionalists, falling into the siren song of necessity. But I want you to know, we've heard this before. We know this tune. There is hope because we've made it through worse. So, I want to show you guys this lesson and what we're going to be doing. So because this is a straight teaching class, I am not going to be able to be monitoring the chat room. We're going to do this straight through as if I was standing in front of a room of a thousand people. And I'm going to be teaching this to you as I do the classes when I do them live. And uh, actually, the one on Liberty First University will be a little bit more dense. There's more information. If you become a student at libertyfirstuniversity.com, the history of the Constitution, the genealogy of the Constitution, is actually a, a more detailed and longer class because I'm going to do this for you in this short radio period of time that we have here. And if you are with us on a, on a station that does not carry the full show and we get cut off in, in midstream, never fear. You can go to Chris Ann Hall YouTube and watch the whole thing. You can go to chrisannhall.com and listen to the entire podcast. Or you can become a member at, at libertyfirstuniversity.com and you can uh, learn this at your own pace and teach others as well. Let me just point out before I move into the lesson, please monitor self-govern. I don't want to hear I don't want to come in the chat room later and see that somebody was abusing the chat room, okay? I don't want to see it. You guys govern yourselves. Please do that. Also, I want to also impress upon you that if you like what you hear, if you see value in what you have seen here today, that I want you to please support us. I want you to please, uh, you can super chat us with a donation today. You can also go uh, do text IMPACT2020 to 33777, 33777, or you can go to chrisannhall.com and donate there. Thank you, Mark Taylor, for jumping on the uh, uh, jumping on the donation right away and helping us. We really, 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 really please, uh, appreciate it. The only other thing that I'm going to ask you is this. I said this yesterday. If you are so moved, as I believe you will be by this lesson, Please don't let it sit here stagnant on YouTube. 
please don't be the only one in your world of, of contacts that watches this. Let's see if we can overcome all the social media biases and make this absolutely viral. I believe, as Samuel Adams said, no people will tamely surrender their liberties nor be easily subdued when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. On the contrary, when the people become universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink underneath their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. I believe that to my core. We are sinking not because of ISIS. I've been saying this for so long. Can you see now, ISIS is not bringing us down. Al-Qaeda is not bringing us down. Foreign invasions over the border are not bringing us, us down. The loss of our liberties are coming through our own hand and our own ignorance. Absolutely. And we can cure that disease. We can absolutely cure that disease. Oh my goodness, you guys. Thank you so much for all these super chats. Treat climbing. Nick, Kata, you guys are so awesome. So here we go. Are you ready? I believe this. I know you do. I believe this with all my heart. If I didn't believe this with all my heart, I would not be here today. I would not be teaching you. Now, the crazy thing is, you're not going to see me. Uh, you know what? I wonder if I can get JC in here to do this, um, but it's probably too late now. Anyway, we're going to go through this. We're going to go through this as soon, as quickly as we can. Let me give just 13 seconds to text JC to ask him to please come in and help me. <laughs> He's actually in the living room, but he said, I'm going to stay out of the way. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the program right here. And I want to show you what I do when I teach the history of the Constitution of the United States. We didn't invent anything in 1776. We didn't even invent the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights. Our Constitution is not a living, breathing document because we didn't make it up. Our Constitution is based on fundamental principles time-tested axiomatic truths so that you and I can know exactly what our Constitution is about, how it's supposed to work, and what it is that we're supposed to do to fix when it goes wrong. How many of you believe, by show of hands, that the, con that the federal government is out of control? I don't even have to look at the chat room to know that you guys know that the, that the federal government is out of control. I've been teaching this now for 10 years. It's the most asked question that I get. What do you think? The most asked question I get is, what do we do to fix it? Well, let me tell you something. One question goes through your mind. I'm gonna plant that seed, that question right now. One question goes through your mind as we're teaching, as I'm teaching here today. How different would America be today if we had been teaching this history over the last hundred years? I guarantee you, you have not had this history class and there is no history like this anywhere else available. Why is history so important? 
Patrick Henry. How many of you remember Patrick Henry? He gave that famous speech, give me liberty or give me death. Those of you watching and listening, how many of you have actually read or heard the entire speech that we have, the, the recording of the entire speech that we have? I mean, obviously it's not like an audio recording, but we have a written record of at least a good part of that speech. How many of you have read the whole thing? You can read it online. It won't cost you a dime. So here's your bit of homework. Go read it now. Well, obviously not right now, but after we're done with this class, go read it. You will see that Patrick Henry said a lot of things besides give me liberty or give me death. He actually said uh, many of things that you might find familiar. Okay. I have, and then he said this, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided and that is the lamp of experience. I know no way of judging the future, but by the past. You see, why do we teach history? Because history is our most valuable teacher. History gives us the lessons learned from the past. How many of you heard of a guy named um, Solomon, right? Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. Why? Because human nature never changes. And that's what I want to show you, what Patrick Henry wanted us to see in this lesson. Now, uh, JC just walked in, so I'm going to put my picture back up there, and I'm going to ask him, JC, is there a way for you to quickly and efficiently put up my camera on here so that they, so that they can see me teach while I'm teaching? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Sure. Okay. Yeah, All right. All right. So while I'm teaching this next slide, JC is going to be working to fix this. This history is so important to us. Why? Because our founders themselves tell us that this history is the foundation for our Constitution. What I'm showing you now is a quote from Federalist 84. A quote from Alexander Hamilton's writing, which tells us that the Constitution itself is based upon five fundamental documents, five documents that make up our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and our Bill of Rights. He says the several Bill of Rights in Great Britain form uh, form its constitution of their history, form our Bill of Rights, and are the absolute aspect of everything that we know. Right? That's, that's Alexander Hamilton teaching us. This is who we are, and we didn't write this doc, these documents in a vacuum. So what I want to show you is how these five documents came about this history of our foundation, <laughs> there's JC working hard, the history of the foundation of our constitution and how, look how awesome he is. Yay! Thank you, JC. <laughs> Are you gonna say hi to everybody as you walk by? <laughs> My tech guy, he's awesome. How these five documents written over 700 years make our Constitution a 
firm foundation, not based on principles, not based on ideas, not based on subjects due to uh, subject to interpretation, items subject to interpretation, but time-tested axiomatic truths. Now, one thing our founders knew is that all power is inherent in the people, okay? Every power that exists in government comes from the people. And that is no different in the foundation of our constitutional republic. Meet the people, the people from the very beginning, okay? This, I'm taking you way, 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 way back, okay? I'm talking about the people who immigrated from Denmark to this central and southern portion of this island. Now, what I've done is I've overlaid a map around here uh, of, of how things are broken down, but this is basically where they immigrated to. These people leaving Denmark because they wanted to start a new place, a new place where they could control their government. And in this time, we're going to sort of fast forward now to the year 1014. In 1014, in our little snapshot of history here in 1014, the, these people here had been governed by kings. Now you need to know the political background of these people. They always lived in kingdoms. And they were most often dominated by Danish kings. Why? Because that's where they came from, right? And so in our little snapshot of history, the Danish king has died. And the Anglo-Saxon people have resisted Danish rule. And they are now, in this snapshot of history, governing themselves in their small communities. Kind of like you would have a parish in Louisiana or a county in other states. They, were, they didn't have a central government. They were self-governing in their small communities and they were being very successful in it. They had internal prosperity, they had domestic peace, they had peace amongst each other, but they had two um, difficulties. They were with foreign affairs. Now, if you live in 1014, and the Danish king is constantly trying to conquer you, to bring you back into their power fold. Now they don't want the Danish king, why? Look how far apart they are from Denmark. They don't want a Danish king because a king so far away, so far remove, removed from the people, has no familiarity with the people and actually is, at this point in time, a foreign king. And in 1014, they've already figured out that foreign kings bring foreign law and when government is too far removed from the people, the people become nothing but property to the rulers. Chattel. For their enrichment. And so they want to keep the Danish king from taking over. So if you're in your little community right here and it's your job to be the sentinel to watch guard and you see the king's men marching upon you from afar off, you're not picking up your cell phone and texting the neighbors saying, hey, it's time for us to come together and it's time for us to 
organize our troops for our common defense. Now that's a language that ought to sound very familiar. Organizing for our common defense. Okay, because the, the, the neighboring county or shire is probably a good day's ride away. You don't have time for that. So problem number one, in our self-governing small communities, how do we organize for our common defense? Problem number two, if you want to keep a foreign king from attacking you, then you have to have a way to keep peace. Now the means that you keep peace in kingdoms is through treaties. How do you keep a treaty with a king? One king sits down with another king and they strike a deal. Well, guess what? If you don't have a king, how's that gonna happen? How many of you think that any king is just gonna sit down with just any common person? Cause that's pretty much all you've got is just regular people. That's not gonna happen. So we've got two foreign policy problems. How do we organize for our common defense? How do we make treaties of peace? How do we make treaties of commerce, which are probably the most strongest form, the strongest form of treaties of peace? How do we make declarations of war? Well, they went to the only form of government they knew back to the kingdom. But they, they added a little twist. They're gonna form a new kind of kingdom called a limited monarchy. Let me show you how the limited monarchy works. So they go to this man named Ethelred and they say to Ethelred, we will allow you to be our king. Number one, your family was kings over us back in the past when we had Anglo-Saxon kings. We want you to be a king because you live amongst us. You are of our culture. You know us. You have an attachment to us. You have a relationship with us. So we will allow you to be our king. But there's going to be conditions. The strongest condition will be this. We will allow you to be our king. But the one condition is your job is foreign affairs. You will leave us alone to govern ourselves. You will help us organize for our common defense. You will help us engage in international commerce. You will help us make treaties. You will help us keep peace in foreign affairs. But you will leave us alone to govern ourselves as we have been successfully in our small communities. Now, if we'd been teaching the constitution properly for the last 150 years. Right now, everybody in the chat room, everybody listening, everybody watching would be like, wow, why didn't we connect those dots before? Because that's the very foundation of our constitutional republic. James Madison explains it best in Federalist 45. He says the powers delegated to the federal government are few and defined. Those that remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. He says the powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government will be exercised principally upon foreign affairs, war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. Not all commerce, just foreign commerce. And then he goes on to say everything else, the internal order operations, the prosperity of the state, the lives, the liberties, the properties of the people are all powers reserved to the states. We didn't even invent the cornerstone 
of our constitutional republic, we inherited from the wisdom of the forefathers of our founders. Now let me watch, let me, let me show you how quickly this changes. So you know how kings work, right? King dies, son becomes king, cousin becomes king. Well, in less than 30 years, this guy is king. His name is Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor. Edward the Confessor is a beloved king of the people. And the people love Edward because they, call, they, they, they classify him as a generous king. Now, often through this class, I'm going to ask you to apply the things that we're learning, okay, in order, just so you can see them, right? And so here's the first thing that I want to ask you. As we've studied, as we've already learned in our limited monarchy, does there exist a lawful power, a lawful authority in the hands of the king to be generous to the people? Well, the answer to that question is no. Remember, the king's authority is foreign affairs, not domestic affairs. So what, what is it that in less than 30 years has caused the people to expand the power of government beyond its original limited capacity in this new limited monarchy? Well, remember, Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature never changes. One fundamental, human, one fundamental principle of human nature has changed limited government in less than 30 years. And that principle of human nature is people love free stuff. And when the king is handing out free stuff, human nature says you don't ask where it came from or how much it might cost you later. I mean, seriously, today, we actually have a bipartisan legislature talking about how important it's going to be to send every American adult $1,000 and every American child $500 to get through the curfew or to get through the, 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 the crisis of the virus. Where does the king get his money? He doesn't have a job. Congress does not make revenue. That money comes from us. That's not free money. When every American gets $1,000 and every American child, every American family with children gets $500 for every child, that's not free money. You have to ask yourself, where is that money coming from? How much is it going to cost me later? Problem is, human nature says, you don't do that. This is the biggest source, the biggest siren song to increase government power. How do we get government, how do we get the people to give us more power? We give them free stuff. And with every dollar and every service, we sign ourselves up for greater servitude. Now the Anglo-Saxon people have a problem because Edward the Confessor is about to die. Their generous king is gonna go away. And the next in line to be king is this king. His name is William I. 
Now the people do not want William I to be their king. Number one, he's not Anglo-Saxon. So once again, you're going to be dealing with a foreign king. He is a, a Norman king. So all the way across the water is where your king is coming from. And he's not coming to live with you people. He's going to send his authority over, but he's not coming. He's got no attachment to you. And the Anglo-Saxon people do not want a foreign king. But remember, they've got a new form of government called a limited monarchy. And in this new form of government, they have an establishment body called the Wittens. And the Wittens are in charge of, and, and I, I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek, very loosely representing the people. And so the people go to the Wittens and they say, we don't want William to be our king. We want an Anglo-Saxon king. And the Wittens say, okay, fine. We have this new kind of kingdom. We don't have to do the whole birth lineage kingdom. We will, we will choose our next king. So they choose a man named Harold Godwinson. Now, Harold Godwinson is Edward's secondhand man. He's the richest man in all of England, second only to the king himself. And the people are fairly sure that Harold is going to be generous like Edward. So they're happy about Harold. Problem is, William's not happy, which is really bad news for the Anglo-Saxon people because William has a nickname. He is called William the Conqueror. Now what happens when you make a guy mad whose nickname is the Conqueror. What's he gonna do? Of course, he is going to conquer the people. So William raises up his Norman army. He goes over and defeats Harold and the English people in a very famous battle you know called the Battle of Hastings. Now I'm sure if I had a show of hand of everybody watching and listening right now, you most of you have heard of the Battle of Hastings. The question then becomes, how many of you were actually taught in your history class that the Battle of Hastings was an essential element to the drafting of our Constitution? Well, perhaps not many of you. So let's keep going. So William has just conquered the people to become king. He is now the king. Now here's the problem. William doesn't want to rule under a limited monarchy under the Anglo-Saxon rule of law. William wants to rule under Norman law as a Norman king because Norman kings rule in the stereotypical way, you know, Game of Thrones, reign, and every movie you've ever seen. I say you do or else. That's the kind of king William wants to be. But William, amazingly enough, is a very, very smart, every very, very wise and crafty king. And he realizes that he has just had to conquer these people to become king, which means he is not a very popular king. Now, since we've been outside the rule of kingdoms for a while, let me explain to you a power a king holds. Every king holds the power and the legal authority to issue law from the throne. They're called decrees. William could very legally issue a decree declaring that Norman law will be the law of the land throughout the entire kingdom. He could do that. But he's just conquered these people to become king, so he realizes that's probably not a very good idea. 
Because when you're not a popular king and you just with the strike of a pen change their laws without their consent, guess what happens? When you are a king in 1066, they don't start a recall petition to remove you from the throne. And they don't start searching the kingdom for a new king to run against you in the kingly election. What they do is they rise up in rebellion and they chop off your head. William realizes this. William does not want to lose his throne and he does not want to lose his head. So instead of with his pen changing the law of the land, William in his wisdom realizes that it will be better to fundamentally transform the kingdom in such a way that the people don't realize what's happening. Here's the amazing wisdom of this king in 1066. He realizes the greatest way to transform a kingdom without the people knowing is to change out the judges in the legal system with judges who are appointed by the king, who have their loyalty to the king and not to the law of the land. And so now William can order these judges to apply foreign law on the people. And because they have no attachment to the people, they have no loyalty to the law, the Anglo-Saxon laws, they do as their king tells them. And here's the crazy thing. Something human nature in our heads, something makes us trust judges. And I'm saying that in a general community kind of way. Think about this. You and your business partner have a billion dollar business and you have a contract dispute. Are you going to go next? Are you going to go three blocks over? to a person you don't even know and knock on their door and say, excuse me, my partner and I have a billion dollar business dispute and we want you to help us read this contract and come to an agreement. Nobody is gonna do that. But you take that same person three blocks away, known by no one, and put them in a black robe on a bench. Not only do you come to that person with wisdom, Society deems their decisions to be, beyond, to be beyond reproach. And the only way you can challenge a judge is through another judge, a different stranger three blocks away that you don't even know. I happen to think that it's spiritual, but I don't know. Somebody wiser than me can tell you why our brains are wired that way. But William knows this, and this is part of his plan. Step number one, change out the judges and the legal system, start applying foreign law that does not respect the rights of the people. Step two, you've just been through a a rebellion. You've just been through a conquering of these people. How do you ensure that they don't rise up and conquer you? Step number two is how you ensure. You identify everybody that fought against you in the Battle of Hastings. You identify everybody that doesn't like you. You identify everybody that speaks out against you. You identify everybody who's not gonna do your bidding. And you chase them off their land. You use these judges and the force of law to chase the landowners off of their land. Because there's a provision in Norman law that says when land becomes abandoned, the ownership of that land reverts back to the 
king. So after he chases all his opposition off the land, he can look out and say, oh, look at all this abandoned land I now own. And step number three comes. He starts inviting all of his foreign friends to come live in the kingdom. Chase out all the people that oppose you. Bring in all your friends that love you or fear you or want something from you. And you fill the kingdom with people who will not object. And then step number three, or step number four, you have to infiltrate the education system. And in this day and age, the education comes from the church. William starts trading out the leadership in the churches with men who are not loyal to their faith, but loyal to the king himself. So now the king can issue orders to the pulpit, declaring that to disobey the king is to disobey God himself. Literally placing the king above God. Now this transformation is going to take place over a period of about 40 years. Through the reign of William I and his son William II. William II is described as being a wicked, evil king, just like his father. Now you'll notice that William is only going to rule for about 13 years. Because one day, William II is going to go hunting with his little brother, Henry I. And I'm pretty sure some, most of you, some of you can just guess what's going to happen, right? William II is killed in a mysterious hunting accident when an arrow from Henry's hunting party accidentally kills William, coincidentally making Henry king. Right? How many of you are buying the whole coincidence? Let me tell you what, the English people are not buying it either. Now, it's true that they did not like William, but they also realize that if Henry will murder his own brother to become king, what will the value of the people be to Henry? Well, obviously, you can't trust him. So Henry has to do a number of things to appease the people and to, to keep his throne and his head at the same time. Now, the first thing Henry's gonna do is Henry's gonna come before the people. He's gonna say something like this. My dear subjects, I realize the circumstances surrounding the death of my brother may seem a bit suspicious. But as king, I have a unique perspective of the kingdom. And here's what I'm going to do to put your minds at ease. I'm going to scour the entire kingdom. And I'm going to identify the three wisest men in all of our land. And once I've identified these three wise men, I'm going to bring them here to my court. And I'm going to task them with a very solemn and important responsibility to determine whether I'm at fault for the death of my brother or not. Now, I'm sure you see a problem with that, right? Henry has just hand-picked his, his judge and his jury. 
How do you suppose the verdict came? You're right. No, no, not, not, not guilty, but actually better than not guilty, innocent. Now, the people of England are not buying this. But I do have to wonder if Henry had had a little bit of modern wisdom. You see, Henry called his investigation a grand tribunal. What if Henry had applied a little bit of modern wisdom and instead called it a congressional hearing? I mean, seriously, it seems to work in America when Congress picks their own investigators, pays for their own investigation, and then determines their own guilt and innocence. How is it that the government can investigate itself and the American people are, are like, yeah, well, you know, they had the hearing. Maybe we should wonder why nothing ever comes from a congressional hearing. The crazy thing is, the people of England knew this. And so they couldn't trust Henry. So Henry has to keep trying to get their approval. Henry's going to do the most important thing for us in our history lesson. Remember Alexander Hamilton told us about those five documents? Henry's gonna sign the first of those five written documents. It's called the 1100 Charter of Liberties. The 1100 Charter of Liberties is Henry's promise to the people that kings will never be evil and oppressive again. Now at libertyfirstuniversity.com we go in deeper into this. Uh, so, but for time's sake, I'm just going to give you an overview, okay? And one example. In this promise, signed and sealed by the king, Henry makes a list of 14 things that government's not allowed to do because if they do them, the people will be on notice that they have an evil and oppressive government and they'll be righteously justified to resist that government. In 1100, righteously re justified to resist this kind of government. This is where we get a promise to the rights of the people. This is where our separation of church and state comes from. I'm gonna talk about that in a little bit. It's property rights of the people, more limited government, not just simply a verbal agreement between the people and Ethelred, but a written standard now, demanding equal, equal application under the law. Let me show you one thing that this king in 1100 declared was the mark of an evil and oppressive government. Henry said, if any of my baron or earl shall die, his heirs shall not be forced to purchase their inheritance, but shall retrieve it through force of law and custom. Now, the barons and the earls are the landowners. And what Henry is saying is, if the heirs of an estate have to pay the government before they can receive their inheritance, you have an evil and oppressive government you are righteously justified to resist. I'm sure you guys see a modern day example for this, right? When you have to pay the government before you can receive your inheritance. Today, our government calls that, what, inheritance tax? death tax. 
Catch this, a king in 1100 with no cell phone realizes that inheritance tax is the mark of an evil and oppressive government, and yet today, in our vast wisdom of technology, we allow our government to call that revenue. Could it be we've been teaching the wrong things for a very long time? Well, what's important now is that through Henry, we have a written promise signed and sealed by the king that will bind every single king in the future. And they're gonna need this because in a hundred years, they're gonna have the most evil king they've ever known. His name is John. John is a massive taxation king. And if you cannot pay your taxes in John's kingdom, which is highly likely, John is going to arrest you, throw you into prison, mutilate you, John is cutting off ears, hands, feet, cutting the tongues out of people who cannot afford to pay their taxes, even executing them. One bishop of John's day said that even hell will be fouled by the presence of John. A little bit of historical trivia for you. John is the first English king to impose an income tax, and they called him vile and oppressive. You guys know John, by the way, you probably don't realize it. How many of you heard of this guy? Yep, John is the king in the Robin Hood story. Now, let me ask you a question. Those of you watching in the chat room or watching us on Facebook or even just listening, just think to yourself. Raise your hand if you've heard this taught about Robin Hood. Robin Hood robs from the rich to give to the poor. How many of you learned that somewhere in some textbook or from someone? That is a lie. That is not even truth in legend. Robin Hood was not robbing the rich to give to the poor in an effort to redistribute wealth. Robin Hood was always taking from the king and the crown the money that had been stolen from the people through unlawful and oppressive taxation and restoring it to the people so they could live. Remember, John is going to execute you if you cannot pay your taxes. Robin Hood is not a socialist trying to put everybody on equal financial footing. Robin Hood is a liberty fighter giving people their lives back. Because you see, the first step to liberty is a right to life. Because you see, if you have to pay the government for the privilege of living, what kind of person are you? Now, what's interesting about our little history today, lesson today in learning, as Patrick Henry said, I have one lamp, which is, which it is to guide me the lamp of the, of the past, to know the future. Our lamp of the past teaches us very important lessons about how government is supposed to work and how it's not supposed to work. And one thing we can learn about John's reign is that murdering people for not paying their taxes is never enough to bring people to the point of rebellion. You see, John has already figured out, this is the crazy thing. These kings, these people who are in power, they're learning from history. They're learning from their mistakes. They endeavor to keep us designedly dumb deliberately dumbed. So we can't identify 
the patterns. So we can't figure out, hey, we've been through this before. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We need to, fi we need to fix this. And we can do A, B, C, D, because that's what they did, and we can fix this. You see, John has figured out that you can take whatever you want from the people as long as you trickle down just enough toilet paper, <laughs> I mean stuff, to keep them happy, complacent, and compliant. You see, the comfort levels can shift, but as long as the people think they're comfortable, they won't rise in rebellion. The good news is the lamp of history always tells us that people like John get power drunk and they always end up committing some fundamental error. John's fundamental error in this aspect is going to be sticking his nose in the church again, violating express written provision within the 1100 Charter of Liberties. The very first promise Henry made was that the church would be completely free from government intrusion. Let me mention to you, this is where our understanding of the principle of separation of church and state comes from. This is not an invention of Thomas Jefferson. This is not an interpretation by the Supreme Court of the United States. This is an undying principle of essential religious liberty. That if the government is influencing, let me just say, it, it controlling or merely influencing the church, you have a wicked, evil government. And apparently we've known that since 1100, but we have forgotten in the last 150 years. Because for centuries now, separation of church and state has always meant that the government has no business in your church. It has only been since our most recent bout of education into ignorance that we've come to accept a lie, a radical lie, that separation of church and state means that God has no business in public discussion and your faith has no business in public affairs. You see, when government is influencing the church, then you have government's unholy marriage with church. But when the people are free to operate according to their conscience without government dictate, then you have liberty. And they knew that in, 11, in, in uh, 1100. And they stood up for it in 1215. A rebellion came against John, bringing us the second document Alexander Hamilton taught us about called the Magna Carta. Now I am fairly certain that many, many of you have heard of the Magna Carta before, but I'm also fairly certain that many of you have never heard, unless you actually learned it from me, about the 1100 Charter of Liberties. And the thing that we miss by not teaching the 1100 Charter of Liberties, a huge step in advancement in, in understanding the whole government people paradigm, the whole limited government, larger liberty for the people. Little pop quiz. You all know the answer to this question. Those of you in the YouTube chat room, I'm going to put you to the test. 
I'm going to ask you this question. You type in the answer. Let's see how well you do. Ready? So, who wrote the 1100 Charter of Liberties? You know this, right? Or at least politically speaking, who wrote the 1100 Charter of Liberties? Well, the answer is Henry the first, right? He signed and sealed it. Politically speaking, he wrote it. What's the difference? The Magna Carta is not written by John. The Magna Carta is written by the people. The Magna Carta is the people standing up to John and saying, hey, you guys made us a promise in 1100 that government would never be evil and oppressive again. You obviously have no idea how to keep your promises. So guess what now? We the people are going to rise up in our majesty. We're going to place ourselves above the king. You see, the Magna Carta creates a committee of 25 men called the Royal Council who will sit in the king's court with the authority to tell the king, no, you can't do that because it violates our liberty. This is the beginning of codified legislation through representation. Not only that, through the Magna Carta, we get our fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth amendments in the Bill of Rights. Not inventions, inheritances through clauses 38 through 41 in the Magna Carta, right there. Not only that, through Clause 61 of the Magna Carta, we get the very, a very important part of our First Amendment, the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of their grievances as a matter of law. Clause 61 of the Magna Carta is so huge. Clause 61 of the Magna Carta is what changes the sheriff from a hireling agent of the king to our constitutional sheriff of today. The foundation of our constitutional sheriff begins in 1215. We didn't, inherit, we didn't invent these things, we inherited them. Now the constitutional sheriff class is a whole different class. It's one that I do teach to our deputies and our peace officers. So we're gonna keep moving on. But Clause 61 of the Magna Carta, the right of the people to petition the government for a redress of their grievances, is so huge. And it has such deep roots. But how many people in America, if you ask them to name all five liberties in the First Amendment, can name that one? Well, John signs the Magna Carta because he has a sword at his throat. And the people remove him from the throne less than a year later. And so for time's sake, we're going to fast forward 400 years to this king. His name is Charles I. Now, Charles I, whether you think so or not, in his day and age, was seen to be a very handsome young king. And he was quite the party animal. They said Charles loved to romp about Europe, spending on his every whim and fancy. Now, whose money was Charles spending? Obviously, the people's. And he got the people's money by collecting their taxes. Now, the Royal Council created in 1215 and 1625 is now called Parliament. 
Parliament gets sick and tired of Charles' wasteful spending, stands up to Charles and says, we're not passing any more of your laws until you get your spending under control. Now, one thing I want us to recognize here, the year is 1625, and you have the legislative branch standing up to the executive branch saying, we're not handing you any more money until you get a proper budget. We're gonna defund you until you get a proper budget. Novel idea, right? Problem is, we're not a constitutional republic as we are today. We're a kingdom. And Charles is able to look at the parliament and say, hey, you know what? This sounds like a great idea on paper, but let me remind you of something. I'm still king, and I'm not quite sure why I even need a parliament. And Charles dissolves parliament. Now Charles realizes from his ancestors that guess what? If I get too tyrannical too fast, they're gonna hold a sword to my throat. So yes, I've dissolved parliament, which is a direct violation of the Magna Carta. And yes, I wanna collect their money. But if I do so using a tax, that might be too much. It might awaken the people to what I'm actually doing. So how do I get their money without awakening them to the fact that I'm doing it unlawfully? Well, Charles has a brilliant idea. He comes to the people and he says, look, as king, you must realize I have a duty to provide you with certain securities and certain services. Now, in order to do this, I have to have money. It's really, really unfortunate that parliament doesn't want me to provide you with these essential these essential services and securities. They're a danger to you and to your way of life. So here's the good news. If parliament won't pass any laws, I will. And if they won't legislate, I'm going to simply regulate. Why? Because I have a quill in a messenger. And here's how this is gonna work. I'm gonna issue a decree, because you know as king, I have the legal authority to issue a decree. And I'm gonna issue a decree to collect your money, but don't worry, it's not a tax, it's just a loan. Yes, you have to give me your money. That's why I'm calling it a forced loan, but I promise that I'll pay you back later. Now the English people are not buying this in any way, shape or form. And a rebellion forms because five knights, remember that Magna Carta, he, they don't work for the king anymore, they work for the people. Five knights stand up to the king and say, guess what? We're not enforcing your law, we're not collecting your tax, and we're not even paying it them ourselves. Charles throws these five knights into prison, denies them their right to due process as, de as required in the Magna Carta, and the rebellion happens. But I do have to wonder, if Charles had had a little bit of modern wisdom, that instead of calling his decree to collect their money a forced loan. What if he had called it social security? I mean, the American people seem to buy into that. You know, what is social security if it's not a forced loan? By threat of penalty under law, you have to pay the government under the promise that they'll pay you back later. I mean, how's that working out for the people these days?
I wonder how many people realize how much money they actually would have if they had invested that, kept and invested that money themselves, than have it force collected by the government. Well, I wonder how different America would be if we'd been teaching this history. The rebellion comes against Charles and brings us the third document that Alexander Hamilton taught us about called the Petition of Right of 1628. From the Petition of Right, we get a very important part of our Bill of Rights, the Third Amendment. I wonder how many out there know what is contained in the Third Amendment. The Third Amendment says that you cannot quarter soldiers in our homes. So Charles signs the Petition of Right the same way John did, with a sword at his throat. But the people are gonna allow Charles to become king. Now Charles is not gonna stop in his tyrannical ways, but the people are watching him very closely. Now listen to what Charles does. See, Charles wants to keep getting their money. And he's realized now that if I want to have their money, I can't just go running off spending it willy-nilly. I have to show the people what I'm spending it on in a way that they want to give me their money. Now the years between 1628 and 1641 are very violent times and they give Charles the perfect opportunity. You see, there are wars everywhere throughout Europe and Charles is able to come to his people and say, hey, do you see those wars over there that all our friends are fighting in their land? Let me ask you a very important question. Do you want those wars to come here? Do you want those wars to come here? Of course not, but I have a perfect plan to keep those wars from coming here. See, all you have to do is give me your money and I'll make sure all our allies are adequately funded. They'll be superior in power and strength, which means they'll win those wars over there. And if they win those wars over there, what does that mean for us? The wars don't come here. See, I told you it was a perfect plan. It's just a matter of national security that you pay your taxes. Now the people are watching Charles very closely and they're noticing something. Charles is lying to them. You see, Charles is not funding their allies. He's actually funding their enemies because the enemies have made a deal that the allies wouldn't make. Charles strikes this deal with the enemy. I help you win over there. You come over here and help me get my people back under subjection. Charles is brought up on charges of treason found guilty and sentenced to death. A process that brings us to the fourth document in the history of our Constitution, the Grand Remonstrance of 1641. The Grand Remonstrance of 1641 reads, the root of all this mischief we find to be a malignant and pernicious, look at this, design of subverting the fundamental laws and principles of government. They said, look, we've been watching government for 600 years now, and we're beginning to notice a pattern. The same bag of tricks over and over and over again, whose only purpose is to overturn and undermine our liberty. And if you go online and read the Grand Remonstrance, you can, and you will see this plan. It's absolutely 
stunning. Are you ready? Those of you taking notes, are you ready to know the undying, never-ending plan of tyrannical government to overturn and undermine, undermine the rights of the people? Not by my words, but by the words of all of history, by the experience and the evidence of all of history. Are you ready? The Grand Remonstrance teaches us the design, corruption of the court system, infiltration of foreign laws, government diminishing the property rights of the people, government influencing controlling the church, the government creating fiat money to manipulate the people through the monetary system, and the government disarming the people while the government remained armed. And those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. How many of you out there have heard of Agenda 21? Agenda 2030, whatever they're calling it these days. Let me explain to you. The United Nations didn't invent this. This was not invented by the Rockefellers. This is the, the never-ending plan of those inspired to enslave the people. You see, go read the Grand Remonstrance. You'll see very literally the people marking their grievance that the king was attempting to take the private land from the landowners in the name of resource preservation, and I quote, depopulation. They also said that Charles was attempting to remove them from the gold and silver standard by creating brass fiat money. And in 1641, they called that treason and chopped off his head. Now, before you get too excited, we're still a kingdom and we're still stuck in the ways of the king. James II is king in 1685. James wants everybody to know him as a great and magnanimous king. And he wants to give the people something they've never had before. I'm a wonderful, amazing, the best king ever. I'm gonna give you something you've never had before. I'm gonna issue a decree that will give you religious liberty. And in his declaration, James says, you no longer have to be a member of the Church of England. You can have church anywhere you want, anytime you want, with any pastor you want, preach anything you want. And the government will not persecute you or prosecute you. But there's a condition. You see, James says, before you have church, you must inform the king where you'll be meeting, when you'll be meeting, who will be preaching, what will be said, and you must promise that you will never say anything bad about the king in church. Now I'm sure that you recognize this is not religious liberty in any way, shape, or form. And in this time, in 1688, seven bishops stand up to the king and they say, hey, wait a minute. We have a promise over, 11, over 500 years old that says you've got no business dictating to us in, your church, in our church. 
So guess what? We're going to preach what we want whenever we want, and we're going to talk about you whenever we want, however we want. And we're not following your decree. James arrests these seven bishops and throws them into prison. He, now, he has learned from Charles that you can't deny them their due process or they'll, you'll, you know, they'll chop off your head. But James has nothing to worry about because James has charged these seven bishops with the crime of seditious libel. You know, you can't talk bad about the king. So, Char so James has nothing to fear because truth is no defense in this law. You see, even in you're talking bad about the king, even if you were correct, you still have to die. But here's the interesting twist to the end of this history. Seven bishops on trial, two of them had their charges thrown out because the judges refused to enforce an unconstitutional decree. The other five were found not guilty because they had a jury of their peers who refused to convict them of an unjust, unconstitutional law. You see, in 1688, the people knew that jury nullification is an essential check and balance on the power and privilege of government. It's only been since our most recent bout of education into ignorance that we've accepted that jury nullification ought to be unlawful because judges ought to be unquestionable. A rebellion rises against James and we get the last document in the history of our Constitution, the English Bill of Rights of 1689. Whereas the late King James II, by the assistance of evil counselors, judges, and ministers employed by him, did endeavor to subvert and extirpate the laws and liberties of our kingdom. Extirpate. That word means to completely destroy. They said what James was doing was completely destroying liberty. They made a whole list of grievances on how James has violated the, the, the uh, Grand Remonstrance, the Petition of Right, the Magna Carta, and the 1100 Charter of Liberties. Now, we're not going to go over the whole list. If you want to know about that, you need to go to libertyfirstuniversity.com, sign up and be a student, and just see how deep the rabbit hole goes so you can identify in detail when the government is engaging in the evil and pernicious design. But I will show you one. They said that James was completely destroying liberty by writing law, overturning law, and setting aside law that was properly legislated. You see, since 1625, we've had separation of powers. And when the executive branch is writing law, overturning law, and setting aside law that has been properly legislated, these people with no CNN, no MSNBC, no Fox News, no cell phones and no internet, no Google Oracle knew, that violation of separation of powers means the complete destruction of liberty. And yet today, our presidents, in plural, 
through the use of executive orders have exercised more power than English kings have exercised since 1688. Perhaps we've been teaching the wrong things for a very long time, and that's why we are doomed to repeat the mistakes. You see, George III did not invent tyranny, and the Declaration of Independence did not invent liberty. Our founders did not meet in some pub somewhere and invent all this stuff. And in spite of what our textbooks say, they weren't a bunch of rich, elite, white, old guys, slave-owning old guys, who were trying to, you know, in their evil design, create a government that would oppress and enslave people. That's the exact opposite. If you want to know how the Constitution ended slavery, if you want to know how these men worked to end slavery through the Constitution, you need to go to libertyfirstuniversity.com. You need to take a class called Slavery in the American Founders, where I teach you not from my opinion, not from my interpretation, but from the words of these people, from the history itself, just like I've taught you here today. Chris Ann Hall has taught you nothing today. History has taught you today that it's the best teacher we have. And if you want to know how the Constitution was written to end slavery and how politicians, wicked, evil politicians, prolong slavery in spite of the Constitution, then you need the LibertyFirstUniversity.com class on slavery and the American founders. You see, life, fortune, and sacred honor is not something that they pledged idly. They sacrificed not just simply to be independent from, from Great Britain, but to say no to kings forever. They gave us a constitutional republic. Everyone in this picture that you see right now played an important, valuable, irreplaceable role in who we are today. Penelope Barker. This is um, Mary Ludwig Hayes, right here, both of them. This is, um, oh, I, f I forget her name. Nancy is her first name. We have uh, Peter Salem. Peter Salem shooting Pitcairn, our first founding uh, mother playwright, our first founding mother historian, our first founding mother political advisor down here in the corner, Mercy Otis Warren, Crispus Attucks, the first man to give his life for liberty, Mary Dyer, one of the first women to give her life so we could learn the lesson of religious liberty. They didn't do this for themselves. They did it for us. And because we don't know their lessons, because our textbooks deny us the truth of history, how many of you have seen history repeating here today? This lesson that I've shown you, how many of you see this? That our, our history is repeating over and over and over again, not just generally, 
but absolutely, completely, and specifically because we have failed to teach this history. Now, I don't know how many of you are new here today for our show, but I want you to, to know that we do this all the time. This is who we are. We are a teach show and not a talk show. We do this on the Daily Journal podcast. We do this at libertyfirstuniversity.com. We actually have these two children's books that teach the history that I just taught you. Our kids should be learning this and they're not going to teach them in our schools. So we as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, sisters and brothers, we have to take up the responsibility of teaching this. You can get these books at chrisannhall.com. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them other places. But let's teach our children. This, this, these books are just amazing. I, don't, I can't take the time to show you them and teach you them. Maybe we'll do that some other time. I'll show you them. But they are absolutely amazing. This history, if you didn't take all these notes, if you want this in written form to teach your children and teach each other, then these are the two books. This one is Essential Stories for Junior Patriots. This one is Bedtime Stories for Budding Patriots. You can get them at chrisannhall.com. Or you can watch this lesson again at libertyfirstuniversity.com. Look, you need to text IMPACT2020 to 333-777 and learn and, and, and support what we're doing today or there are other ways that you can support us as well. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just got distracted. I, I looked down at my phone and apparently, um, if my phone is correct, I've just received a, a phone call from Senator Rick Scott. <laughs> So um, I'm sure it's some robo call. I don't know why, uh, but otherwise I don't know why it would come up as a, as a caller ID of Senator Rick Scott, but maybe tomorrow I'll let you know whether I actually got a phone call from Senator Rick Scott. Sorry, my, my, my squirrel mind ran off with me for a second. But look, this is so important and I just simply want to thank you for joining us today. Let me roll back through here through the chat room and just simply give a special thank you to all the people who have given us this super chat, who've supported us through super chat. Um, thank you, Donovan Jewett, for your super chat support of this lesson. Thank you, Kate Mathian, uh, 1034, I don't know if I said that right, for your super chat support. Thank you, Dragons Talon, for your super chat support. Some of you giving super chat stickers, you guys are so awesome. Thank you, where are you, the rest of them, here we go. Thank you, Donovan Jewett again. Thank you, oh no wait, I, sorry, I scrolled back down there in the bottom. Thank you, Fonda Hill, for your super chat support. Thank you for Cobb Adams for your super chat support. You guys have really, really helped me and I can't, uh, I can't, I can't say thank you enough um, for all of your support, for all of you that helped us. I mentioned you guys earlier, thank you. God bless you. Now, I remember you promised me that if you liked the show today, if you saw the value in what you learned, don't leave it here. I'm not going to take this off of YouTube. Those of you who helped me with the super chat today, those of you who are donating to me today, you are actually going to help me keep this on YouTube because this is, this is how we make money to keep doing what we do. This is a full-time job for us. So what we do, what I teach is our revenue and you are helping us. 
make this public. And I just want to say thank you because I think this is so important. So because you help us, because you see the value, please make this viral. Undo what they're doing to us, please. Don't forget to hit the thumbs up on your way out. Don't forget if you're new here, subscribe and hit the bell so you get the notifications when we come live for all our, our daily journals. Uh, tomorrow, JC will be with us uh, back and with his his spiciness. You guys love his humor. You think he's hilarious. I think he's hilarious too. But thank you guys for everything that you do. Uh, Cobb Adams on our chat room wants to recommend my class called America Disarmed. Oh my goodness. Maybe I should schedule. What do you, what do you think, Cobb? Should I schedule a day where we go through America Disarmed classes too? Also, just so you know, I have a book called Sovereign Duty. Um, I don't think I have a picture of that up here today, but I have a book called Sovereign Duty that will give you the solutions to this problem. Sovereign, oh, I just touched my face. Ah, <laughs> Corona panic. Um, I, my book, Sovereign Duty, available on Kindle, available on Amazon, available on Walmart, Books A Million, chrisannhall.com. If you're wondering, oh my goodness, Chris Ann, I didn't realize how out of control our government is. How do I fix this? You need the book Sovereign Duty. It will teach you, not as, not as other people teach you what their opinion is, but as my classes teach you what history and the founders themselves say about how do you fix a federal government out of control. So there's the, the, the end of what we're doing. Please, if you're going over to, to uh, uh, Frank's show, at quite frankly, please give him my love, give him a hug and a kiss from me and tell him I will see him on Monday next week. Monday next week on the Quite Frankly Show right after the Chris Ann Hall Daily Journal. Sovereign Duty is the name of the book. Thank you, Anthony Gonzalez. Thank you for all of those who uh, joined us today. God bless you, and we will see you next time. <laughs>